Lovely to be with you again. I'm here with my precious wife, Pip, who's keeping herself warm, uh, and our dog, Min, who's in the car. We did think of bringing her in, but thought uh, she's better in the car. So uh, it's lovely to be with you again and uh, to encourage you. Um, We were due to be with you again next week. Unfortunately, we won't be, so I'm condensing the two weeks into now. So uh, hang on to your hat. We'll go through till 12 noon. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, unfortunately, we've got to fly down to Wellington to take a, um, my uncle's funeral, so um, uh, we won't be here. We'll be there. But if you've got your Bible with you, let's turn to John's Gospel, Chapter 1. John, Chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 14 again into, through to verse 18. So let's uh, follow in God's Word together. John, Chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus testifies, sorry, John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Some translations will read, we have received grace upon grace, or grace heaped upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Amen. I want to just build on what we shared a couple of weeks ago and talk about, like Jesus, what it means to be full of grace and truth. In verse 18 of John 1, It tells us that no one has seen God, only Christ who is at the Father's side knows him that intimately and he has come to make him known. And that word known conveys the idea of to explain, to narrate, to interpret, to let us know the true meaning of something. And it's only the person of Christ who can explain to us the true meaning, the true nature who who the Father is. And these verses have been challenging to me, as I said a couple of weeks ago, all through my Christian life, that in revealing the Father to us, these verses describe Jesus as the only fully full explanation of who God is, as someone who is full of grace and truth. And while these verses we've read tell us so much more in the time we have, I just want to focus on that key phrase. What it meant for Christ to be full of grace and truth, and what it means for us who are meant to follow Christ, to become like Christ, to also be full of grace and truth. You and I are living in a world, if you're watching the news in any capacity, where Western civilization is slowly unraveling and imploding, and truth is not liked. And truth is being reinvented, reinterpreted right across the board in all social areas. It's an incredible thing to be witnessing. 
And so we as followers of Christ are following a Christ who is full of grace and truth. That word full is a word that conveys the idea of being complete. You are full, you are complete. And the idea also behind that word is that which fills you, influences and controls your life and destiny. We use that word sometimes, I'm sure you've perhaps referred to someone who's full of themselves. None of you have probably ever said that of anyone. But you know what that means. What overflows in their life is just them. Their opinions, their thoughts, they're not interested in anyone else. They're full of themselves. The word is used in Luke's gospel to describe a ship sailing across the Lake Galilee and its sails were full of wind. So the idea there is the wind is filling the sails and you've seen a sail ship driving it, compelling it along the ocean surface. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians 5 where it says we should not be drunk with wine but be what? Filled with the Spirit. And then Paul goes to describe the kind of life that is full of the Spirit. It's a life of worship, of praise, of mutual submission and respect to one another. It describes in what a Spirit-filled marriage and family looks like, what a Spirit-filled Christian in the workplace looks like. It doesn't end describing at singing hymns and songs. So a person who is full of grace and truth is a person whose life is being compelled, driven along through their journey, overflowing with grace and truth. And the two need to be married together. Some of us are people who err on the side of grace, aren't we? It's like we're nice, we want everything to be nice, we want to be gracious, we don't like confrontation, we don't necessarily want to tell the truth, because truth-telling can be confrontational. Some of us, we leave grace aside and we're just all about the truth. We want people to know exactly what we think about anything. And we want to tell people the truth, but we don't know how to do it in a grace-filled way. And what this world needs desperately is Christ followers whose lives are filled with grace and truth that influence us, compels us, drives us along in our life journey where we're overflowing in a world that is hurting and lost and broken that needs to experience grace and truth. Grace is an incredibly rich word. It's a very rich Christian word. And in its original usage, it basically meant charm and beauty. Something that was charming, beautiful, and to use an old English word, winsome, attractive. And we talk about people who are, what? Gracious, kind. There's a beauty about them. How it came to be used in biblical times, New Testament times, was that grace came to be a word that also described someone who did not deserve something receiving something from a benefactor purely out of the gift of grace and kindness. 
And that when that kindness, that grace, that generosity was expressed to an unworthy recipient, it had the impact of grace changing their heart and grace coming into a person's life creates something beautiful. It transforms from the inside out. That's why grace is always referred to in the New Testament as a gift. It's purely a gift from a generous Father's heart. And so Christ, who is at the Father's side, comes to reveal and paint a picture for us of what the Father is like. And all through his teaching and ministry, he's conveying to us that this Father is a Father of incredible generosity and grace, who wants to give a grace that can transform a heart and bring forgiveness and transformation that has to be received. We have um, eight grandchildren, and I have not seen one of them not willingly receive a gift. Not at this point. They'll even ask before the gift is there. <laughs> That's the nature of a child's heart. But when we become grown ups, I don't know about you, we struggle to receive at times, don't we? And as I've asked myself and I've searched through the scriptures about grace and looked at the life and ministry of Christ, I've asked myself the question, how do I receive this grace? How do I become a person full of grace? And grace is expressed in various ways through the scriptures. There is God's what is called common grace. It's a term theologians use to describe the grace that God gives to all humankind. Jesus put it this way, the sun shines on what? The just and the unjust. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Every person alive on planet Earth who takes their next breath, whether they realize it or not, is breathing because of the gift of God. There is a common grace that God gives to all humankind that he hopes, as Romans 1 reveals, people will see in that common grace there is someone behind it, behind the creation they enjoy, the breath they draw the people they encounter. Then there is what's called a saving grace. And that's the Ephesians 2 grace, which says you have been saved by grace. Not of yourselves, not of anything you've ever done to earn it, but it is the gift of God. Then there's what's called a sanctifying grace. And that's a grace that sustains us through our Christian life that continues to change us little by little into the image of Christ. And then there's a fourth category of grace, which I love, which someone has called sustaining grace. Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 12 talks about the struggles and weaknesses he has in his life and journey, and he talks about the fact that he asked God, what, to take his problem away many times. And he says, God's reply to him was this. My power is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. There is a grace that God gives that is sufficient to sustain us through all the struggles and journeys of life. And as someone who has battled in his own life and walked with many other people through the journeys of depression, mental health issues and all of that, I have found the sustaining grace of God a wonderful thing. 
Rick Warren, some of you would have heard of him, a pastor who has just announced his retirement. Many years ago, him and his wife went through the tragedy of losing their son to suicide who had battled mental health issues for many years. After a long break, he returned to the pulpit to speak. And one of the things he said is a quote that is really ministered to my heart. He said, in the garden of God's grace, even broken trees bear fruit. In referring to people who battled with weaknesses and brokenness, there is a sustaining grace of God. And I say that to say this. One of the things I've learned is as a follower of Christ, being full, a person full of grace and truth does not mean I am a person who's got it all worked out, who is living a life that is completely whole. But even out of my weakness and brokenness, the grace of God not only sustains me, but flows through my life to other people. Jesus said these words in verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. It literally is translated grace upon grace. Who likes being by the water, the sea? Pip and I live by the sea. And from our deck, from our home, when the water's coming in on the bank of our property, we can hear it lapping. It has a very lulling effect at times. (laughs) You don't listen too long or you could doze off quite easily. But it comes in wave upon wave. One little wave comes in, then another. And when I hear that sometimes, I think of this verse, grace upon grace, because that illustrates what these words mean, is that As you receive God's grace to sustain you, to save you, to change you, just when you think maybe it's running out, there's another wave of God's grace that comes in upon that grace. And that's the image. Next time you're standing at the water watching wave upon wave, think about that from the fullness of Christ, like an ocean that never runs dry, grace laps upon grace upon grace. And what I've learned from that too, and you see in the scriptures, is that if I'm going to be a person full of grace, I've got to keep giving that grace away in order for the next wave of grace to come and to give that grace away so the next wave of grace comes. God wants his grace not only to be the fullness of our life, but flowing out from our lives to other people. Because it never astounds me that grace and kindness and mercy is more transformative to people than trying to confront them. Romans 2, and I think it's around verse 14, says, the kindness of God leads to what? Repentance. When I came to the saving grace of God, no one needed to tell me I was a dead little rotten sinner. (laughs) I only knew too well the state of my own heart. But what was demonstrated to me was kindness and grace and mercy that made me hunger to want to have what those people had. But with grace must come truth. It's insufficient to just express grace without truth. 
Because truth then is what comes in upon that wave of grace that transforms us and sets us free. Jesus put it this way in John 8, 31, 32. He said, if you're truly my disciples, you will what? Know the truth. You will continue in the truth and the truth will set you free. That word truth is a word that John loves to use throughout his gospel and in his letters. And the word literally means that which is accurate. It also could be defined as that which is reality. And I don't know about you, but sometimes Pip and I now have the habit after, <clears throat> we confess this, watching the chase of turning the TV off at six o'clock because I'm not sure that the news I'm watching at times is altogether truthful. So I've learned to find other sources to get accurate truth if I can. No one likes fabrication or being lied to, do we? You should all be going, no. <laughs> we want truth, and people really are searching for truth. I think more so than ever, with all the lies and the untruths that are being conveyed throughout our society, particularly in certain levels of our society as related to well, you just about name it. And what's happening in our schools in terms of what's being taught now to our children about identity and gender, etc. Our children from age five are being lied to. And our world needs to rediscover truth. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And what that says about Christ is he came as the only one who could accurately represent who the Father really is. The truth about God. The truth about the human heart, the human condition, and how we're meant to live. And one of the signs that we are living in the last days that the New Testament teaches, both in Timothy and Thessalonians, is the fact that we would reach a point where people no longer loved the truth. And Paul talks about it in Romans and Timothy and Thessalonians about the fact that the world starts to implode because people want to exchange the truth for a lie. Why? John 3 makes it clear it's because they prefer the works of darkness than light. Being a person of truth is basically carrying a torch of light in a darkening world. Where I am living by the truth of God's word and the person of Christ in order to shine differently, to live differently in such a way that my grace-filled, truth-filled lives stand out and become attractive to a world that is in absolute confusion. There is an objective truth and reality that the world needs to hear and see lived out through us. And as Christians in this culture, that is going to become increasingly challenging. But God's word defines reality. I don't know about you, but I set a goal once to spend a year, which I did, reading through a chapter of Proverbs every day because there's 31 chapters in Proverbs. Anyone ever done that, the Proverbs challenge? Well, 
it was really hard because I'm reading through Proverbs and reading statements about what a wise person is and what a fool is like, and I'm thinking, that's me. I'm a fool. (laughs) God's word, as James 1 says, is like a mirror. You look into it and you see an accurate, truthful, real reflection back. And I'm going through Proverbs thinking, I don't know if I want to do this month after month. This is just too convicting. But it was transformative as I began to see what the character of a wise person was compared to a foolish person, for example. God's word reflects back to us accurately the truth, the reality about the world we live in, about the state of our own heart, and about the beauty of God's grace. The beauty of God's grace. From the fullness of his grace, we've received one blessing, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If I want to be a person of truth, I need to live in this book. One great preacher said, if I never saw the news or read a newspaper and all I read was this book, I could tell you what state the world is in. Because it accurately describes it. Accurately describes it. To be a person of truth, Jesus said, we need to continue in his word. We need to soak our hearts and minds in his word. And then his word changes us. I want to, just in these closing minutes, give you a couple of real quick illustrations of how this worked out in the life of Christ. If you turn to John chapter 4, just a couple of chapters over, so we'll stay in the same book. Jesus is on a journey, and he comes to walk through Samaria. If you know anything about the Samaritans, the Samaritans were despised by the pure-blooded Jews because the Samaritans were a half-breed of people that they despised. And in 721 BC, um, Assyria came through, took the northern tribes of Israel, of the Jewish people, into captivity, and they intermingled in marriage so that over the centuries, they lost their pure Jewish roots and blood. Whereas the southern kingdom, when they were taken into captivity in around, was it 586, 87 BC? Jason's nodding, it must be right. <laughs> um, They didn't intermingle or intermarry and maintained their purity. So when they all came back together, the pure-blooded Jews despised the others to the point they wouldn't drink from the same cup, they wouldn't eat, they wouldn't pass through Samaria. If they had to go beyond that point, they would go around rather than through. And they had a prayer that asked God to forget the Samaritans Um, on the day of resurrection. Is that racist or is that racist? (laughs) We see a lot of racism today. And that was back then. So what does Jesus do full of grace and truth? He goes right into Samaria. Not only does he go in there and send his disciples off to do some work for him, he goes to a well because he's tired and weary and thirsty And he breaks all the cultural 
norms and taboos of his day to not only go into Samaria, but to speak to a Samaritan woman, which was an absolute no-no. There was a group of Pharisees known in Jewish times as the bruised and bloodied Pharisees. The reason was when they saw a woman, particularly if she was Samaritan, they would put their hand over their eyes and close their eyes so they didn't have to look upon them and stumble through the streets, banging into walls and all sorts of things. And they were known as the bruised and bloodied Pharisees. I mean, incredible, isn't it? But it still persists today. Jesus, full of grace and truth, opened his eyes, looked at this woman, engaged her in conversation, even asking her to give him a drink from her utensil. He broke all the social norms of the day to reach out what? In grace. To let her know that she mattered. She came into a revelation. Ultimately, if you read through the whole chapter, it's a beautiful, glorious chapter. So that right at the very end of the chapter, we're told through her testimony after her encounter with Christ that many Samaritans came to believe in who Jesus was. And then he asks her an interesting question. She's engaging in conversation with her, and then in verse 16, he, Jesus, told her, go call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite what? True. Jesus encountered her full of grace, but also full of truth. He revealed to her her whole life story and the state of her heart. It would not have been enough for Jesus to stop at the thanks for the cup of water. He brought her to a place of truth about the state of her own heart and the condition of her life, and then he brought her into a revelation of the truth about who he was, because she would later say, you're a prophet, we're looking for the Messiah, etc. And Jesus would say to her, I am he. And in that moment, she saw her saviour. She experienced grace and truth. And as you read through the Gospels, you find these beautiful encounters of Christ. Luke 19, um, Zacchaeus a most despised tax collector and sinner, and Jesus walks into town. Everybody hates him, and Jesus walks straight up to him and says, dude, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. And they're all going, he's going into the home of a sinner. Jesus full of what? Grace and truth. Because he must have faced Nicodemus up with his truth because there's ever a picture of repentance, it's that. If I've wronged anybody, I'll give them their money back even four times. That's a change of heart. The conversation over lunch would have been extremely interesting. We could go through example after example in the Gospels. Jesus dealt with people with grace and truth. Grace opens a door very often into the heart of a person. Then truth can be revealed, and then it's like grace comes in on that truth like one wave after another and changes the heart of that person. 
That's my personal testimony, and I'm sure that's yours. And that's in part what it means as Jesus was the word made flesh for us as followers of Christ to be Jesus with flesh in the world we live in is to be like Jesus, full of grace and truth. Let's stand together. Father, we want to thank you for the revelation of your heart and character that has come to us through Christ, that you're a Father who wants to give us grace, that brings about the forgiveness of our sin and the transformation of our heart. And we realize as we journey through this life, we need grace upon grace upon grace. And we thank you that your grace never runs dry. And we acknowledge our need for your grace to sustain us, to change us, to not only fill us, but also to flow out from us so that your grace through us will open up hungry, searching hearts to the truth of who Jesus is, just like it did for that Samaritan woman. Father, we pray you'll give us a sensitivity in the days ahead to the world around us, to the people around us, that we would look for opportunities to be full of grace and kindness to people that then at the right time we will be able to reveal truth to them of who you are and how the truth about you can transform by grace their very heart and life. Father, I pray for this church family here in this community that they will represent Christ well full of grace and truth. And I ask your blessing on every person, every family represented in this church family, those who are present, those who are not. We thank you for the influence of grace, truth-filled lives. In Jesus' wonderful name.